Refreshing, like a cigarette, but electronic. Dooge isn't here, so I don't feel the need to do the big bombastic intro. You I can might. Do it uh, any way you want. Well, I am. I'm not doing the big bombastic intro. Okay. Maybe. I feel like I, I need to standardize the intro, so I'll record the name of the podcast later and then drop it into an intro. That's how we do things in technology. Thank you for that thumbs up. <laughs> this is the show. This is not an intro. This is not a bit. This is the show. <laughs> uh, little help. <laughs> Hi, Stefan. Have, ha- have you ever seen a man shit himself live on a podcast? <laughs> it's happening. Oh, oh God. God. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> Everywhere. Oh, I'm sorry. I... I I thought you just meant to, like, not doing it in the, uh... In the Stan Lee voice? In the Stan Lee voice. I didn't no, realize you didn't mean doing it not at all. Okay, we're, sorry. We're, we're, in media, we're in media wrestling. Well, all right, let's do it. All right. <laughs> what are we talking about today? All right, well, I get... God damn it, now i got to back up again. <laughs> I can't cut any of this out. I've only got one tape. Um, no, so this is uh, Cinema Excelsior, and today our panel is uh, myself, I am Stefan Claypool, and uh, today I will be playing the role of uh, of heat-seeking Dennis. Uh, to my digital left is Nick Bester. Uh, Nick, I, I know that you want this, so I'm going to give you the role of Quinn. <gasps> That's Donald Logue, right? That is Donald Logue. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. This is the greatest gift I've ever been yeah. given in my life. And to his digital left is Derek Long. And Derek, I know you want this. I am giving you the role of Dragonetti, oh, played by Udo Kier. Whistler? What did you Whistler, want? Whistler, really? You wanted, to, you wanted to be Chris Christopherson? I wanted to be Chris Christopherson. Oh, I thought, I thought you wanted to be Udo Kier. How, how could you think fine, that? Fine, how, <laughs> fine. Fine. Because he's German? Is that, was that your reasoning? Because when I watched Suspiria for the first time and texted you that I was watching it, you responded, oh yeah, with Udo Kier as Dr. Frank Mandel. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I couldn't. This ha- When did this happen? This happened like four years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was like 2010. <laughs> wow. All right. But it made an impression. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I still wanted to be yeah. fucking Chris okay, Christopherson, you... though. Okay, okay, okay. You can be Chris yes! Christopherson. Are you? You you've shown you've shown the correct amount of stick to itiveness required to be Chris Christopherson. <sighs> so yes, our uh, our film today. Uh, th- this is this is actually one that I'm kind of interested to see how we tackle because the four films we watched so far have all been of uh, questionable quality. Yes, there's four. <laughs> Um, I saw you counting, Nick. I thought we had gotten done five already. I, nope. I thought this was the sixth, not the fifth. Nope. All right, this is the fourth. Uh, this this is the first one that uh, could actually be actually be uh, said to have succeeded uh, artistically, and certainly to have succeeded commercially. Yeah. Uh, this is Blade from 1998. Blade. Blade. Um. Yeah. Directed by. Mr. Stephen Norrington, who we'll get into briefly. Uh, but first, a quick 
uh, as we do a quick summary of the plot. Now, this is actually one that we might encourage you to seek out. You can get it on DVD, probably yes. for five bucks at Best Buy or Amazon. Uh, you can get it on iTunes. Um, I don't know if this one is on YouTube or not. New Line I don't think it is. I was looking it for it. YouTube. Uh, but yes, uh, Blade. 1967, a woman is rushed into an emergency room with a gaping neck wound. As doctors tend to her and helpfully announce that she's been bitten, her contractions accelerate. She is pregnant and the baby isn't waiting. She gives birth to a bouncing baby boy and dies as he is taken away. Flash forward 30 years, and this is where IMDb became helpful. Raquel, a sexy lady, leads the improbably named heat-seeking Dennis. Again, thanks, IMDb. I was trying to figure out who the fuck heat-seeking Dennis was. That's heat-seeking Dennis, because she grabs his crotch and says, you've got a real heat-seeker here. Uh, Raquel leads heat-seeking Dennis to a secret nightclub rave hidden inside a meat factory. What kind of meat? Hold that thought. Poor Dennis is just looking for a little love, but ends up soaked in human blood when the sprinkler system starts raining down the red stuff, and the entire crowd of stylish young people is revealed to be, gasp, vampires. The uh, meat in the factory, incidentally, was man. (laughs) Uh, Dennis crawls to safety, which is to say he crawls out of the rain of blood, and finds himself at the feet of a black-clad warrior that one 80-yard vampire helpfully calls Daywalker. Meet Blade. He slaughters the crowd, leaving alive only Dennis and a chatty vampire named Quinn, who he sets aflame as the police arrive. (laughs) Quinn is presumed dead, obviously, and taken to a hospital, where he is examined by Dr. Karen Jansen, a sexy hematologist. I can't pronounce things. A sexy hematologist. And her clearly expendable (laughs) ex-boyfriend, Curtis. Remember how Quinn isn't dead? Yeah, Curtis finds that out the hard way when the still-smoking would-be corpse tears his throat out and then bites Karen before Blade shows up again to scare him away. Blade escapes the police, uh, the pursuing police with Karen and takes her to an old abandoned factory where he and his partner Whistler have set up shop. Whistler admonishes Blade for not killing Karen and then injects her with a big honking syringe of garlic. Delicious garlic. Meanwhile, at a board meeting of delightfully international and multicultural vampires, uh, Chairman Dragonetti grills young upstart Deacon Frost, owner of the nightclub. Dragonetti and the older pureblood vampires, that is to say, they were born vampires as was every member of the house, uh, want to remain discreet and strike deals with the humans, while the young upstart Frost, who was turned from being a human, advocates coming forward to rule over the world. Karen awakens in time to witness Blade being injected with some kind of serum. She is ar- uh, Blade and Whistler arm her with vampire mace and send her back out into the world, where she is set upon by a familiar, which is to say a vampire's human servant. Surprise! Blade used her as bait to get a lead on Frost. Blade and Karen track the familiar to another nightclub, this one filled with Japanese vampires watching schoolgirls sing Japanese hip-hop songs. Blade there in... Yeah, of course. Blade there interrogates a horrific blob vampire monster called Pearl and learns that La Magra is coming. Blade and Karen then break into a secret archive where the Book of Erebus, a vampire Bible, is being kept. 
But surprise! Quinn and his men show up, injure Blade, and are ready to kill him when, surprise again, Whistler catches these fuckers at a bad time <laughs> and saves the day. Back at the factory, Whistler reveals Blade's secret. His mother was bitten by a vampire while pregnant, giving Blade all of the vampire's strengths and none of their weaknesses, except the need for blood, which is sated by the serum. Frost begins making moves, killing Dragonetti and taking over the board of vampire directors before confronting Blade with the help of a lot of sunblock. Turns out he needs Blade alive to complete a ritual to bring forth La Magra, a blood hurricane. Frost escapes, but little does he know, but little does Blade know that he has just been distracted. Just in time for Karen to explain that she's created a vaccine against vampires and a magical serum that would cause them all to explode. Remember, she's a hematologist. Frost's crew break into the factory, kidnap Karen, and mortally wound Whistler. Blade returns just in time to find Whistler bitten and say goodbye, leaving him to commit suicide. Blade goes to confront Frost, only to find, gasp, his mother is alive and also a vampire. And further gasp, Deacon was the one who bit her all those years ago. Blade, I am your father. Frost's men subdue Blade and use a contraption to drain him of his blood and fuel a ritual that will give rise to La Magra. Karen, meanwhile, escapes from her zombie ex-boyfriend Curtis, remember him? Lovable Curtis? And frees Blade, who is now severely weakened. Karen allows him to recharge on her blood, which ends well for everyone, surprisingly. Blade then kills his mother and goes after Frost. The thing is, Frost succeeded. Only that blood hurricane thing? Well, that's kind of a metaphor. And now Frost is invulnerable and composed of magically regenerating blood. If only we had some way to take care of that. Oh yeah, like magical blood exploding compounds that were invented by a sexy hematologist. Blade blows Frost up real good, saves the day, and then heads off to Moscow for another adventure. The end. <laughs> Was a happy film. <laughs> yes. A couple a of notes. Yes. Uh, you say sexy hematologist. I would just like to ask, aren't they all? That's true. That's true. I'm sorry. Goes without saying. A, contra- a, a redundancy of terms. That's true. Mm-hmm. Back to you. Yes. Um, a couple of quick notes before we begin our discussion proper, because Blade is not exactly the most high-profile Marvel property to be adapted. Uh, the character was created by the man with the greatest name in comic book history, uh, prolific writer Marv Wolfman, spelled as Not Wolfman. Bad. Yeah. Obviously. And, and artist Gene Colon in Tomb of Dracula number 10. No, not as good. Uh, introduced in Tomb of Dracula number 10. And Tomb of Dracula was a fantastic comic in the mid-70s. Fantastic Marvel book. Um, Blade made a string of appearances there before Wolfman pulled him back. Uh, he said that he worried that Blade would overwhelm the rest of the cast, A, And also at the time, because it was the 1970s and these were comics being written by white men, Blade sounded like what you would imagine a white comic book writer in the 1970s imagining a black vampire hunter to speak like. Wolfman said that he spoke, quote, Marvel Black. Uh, Blade made sporadic appearances in the 1970s and 80s. He was in a comic called The Night Stalkers in the 90s. And has had a ton of miniseries, guest spots, a couple ongoings. But he's never been in a comic that lasted more than about 12 issues. Um, hmm. Or at least never carried a book of on his own. So he's a reliably third-tier character. Um, 
his only media history before this was he appeared in a couple of episodes of the Spider-Man cartoon in the 1990s, which actually went pretty far in defining a lot of what we think of as Blade's character. Now, int- the cartoon introduced the concept of Blade as a daywalker and introduced the Whistler character. And that led to, uh, to his appearance in this film. Now, the film was directed by Stephen Norrington. Norrington has directed three other films, and the last film he directed was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Ooh. So, th- so things didn't end well for him. Uh, Which is also written- Sean Connery's last movie. He has not done anything since then. No, he has not. Yeah. Uh, the film was written by David Goyer, who hmm. has since gone on to, uh, among other things, write the Dark Knight trilogy and build a, uh, a good career for himself. Uh, the film was budgeted at $45 million, made $131 million total, and uh, actually tested very poorly uh, in pre-release screenings, uh, which required that the filmmakers actually go back and completely rework the ending. That whole LaMagra being a blood hurricane thing, uh, that was literal in the original script. <laughs> Probably best not to have done that. Yes. So yes, that is uh, that is the brief introduction to the film. Uh, initial thoughts. I, I my initial thought is that um, in some ways, like I think the adaptation of uh, this film is interesting, and I, I suppose I should be more specific. The fact that they chose Blade um, as kind of like the first, um, really like major, and as it would turn out successful kind of marvel character to release i think um the fact that blade is sort of a third tier marvel character like helped um in certain in certain respects right i mean it doesn't uh, it doesn't have um a whole bunch of kind of backstory coming with him into this you know mm-hmm. new franchise um mm-hmm. he doesn't have you know really a huge fan base as far as i know um at least didn't in circa 1998 i could be wrong about that but um it's just interesting that you know this this actually became a franchise right i mean we had there were there were two sequels um and a tv show show. and a tv um you know and if if you just compare that to you know captain america you know even the punisher um much higher profile sort of characters um sort of failed films (laughs) obviously there were other reasons for that but um yeah. <laughs> nope. No other reasons for that. Nope. But just as as adaptation, just, I think this is. They were just too. They were too big. Pro. Uh, too high profile characters. They were just too big for the screen. <laughs> um. But just as adaptation, um. You know, I I think this is a really interesting kind of case. So yeah. I don't know if you guys want to talk about mm-hmm. that. I think, I think my first reaction, or this is not really my first reaction. My like fourth reaction. This is probably the third or fourth time that I've seen this movie. But as I was watching it, I was thinking, I don't think it's a great movie, but I think it's a very cool movie. It's a much cooler movie than it is a great movie. And I think the other thing I'd like to talk about that we can get to maybe later, uh, I find the aesthetics of the film very interesting because it seems like it's very much of a very specific moment in like late 90s, early 2000s sort of Mm -hmm. underworld dystopian things it feel like it's very similar to the aesthetic you see in the right. matrix uh which i think i think maybe the matrix was so popular as to sort of kill that aesthetic because anybody else trying to do it looked like they were aping the matrix mm-hmm. uh but obviously you can see here this like you know seedy underworld of secret clubs where everyone wears leather is very much operating here 
Could you make that case for Batman and Robin of the previous year? There is that motorcycle <sighs> scene with all the sparks. Oh my god. And <laughs> Coolio's there. Coolio's there. There's Coolio there. I feel like I I mean that's obviously a much more like high camp version of it's probably a similar aesthetic, but I feel like not that Blade isn't a campy movie, it's definitely a campy movie, but it's not it's not colorfully campy in the way that Batman and Robin is. Yeah, it's it's not sort of as flamboyantly sort of, campy. You know, like that kind of black and blue metallic, you know, leather. <laughs> it's sort yes. of the like there's a there's like a very specific aesthetic here that you see in this you see it in the matrix movies you see it uh dark city which obviously has oh, a yeah, lot of yeah. obviously has a lot of similarities with Ma- the matrix and i believe was filmed on some of the same sets if i remember correctly uh, the crow uh, mm-hmm. the crow yeah um and then yeah i think i think perhaps if the matrix hadn't been as successful a movie this aesthetic may have maybe we would have seen more of it and more things i think uh I think that the, uh, those are all good points, and I want to touch on. Thank you. Yeah, you're a very smart man. <laughs> I want I want to touch on one thing, um, kind of going back to what you were saying, Derek, about the idea of this being an interesting character to adapt. the The film that I kept thinking of as I watched this this movie was The Punisher, mm-hmm. actually. I kept thinking about mm-hmm. the Dolph Lundgren Punisher, and and I felt like there was an attempt here to do a lot of the same things that were attempted in the Punisher. You have taken a character who has you know some definition, some basic archetypical characteristics in the comics, and more than trying to be a faithful adaptation of who that character is worked to translate him into a medium and contextualize him in a way that, you know, a pure adaptation, if you were doing something like Spider-Man, you might not have been able to get away with. I think that the difference here is uh, they did not cast a large, gaping Scandinavian (laughs) void as the the main character. Yes, Um, they cast a man with charisma. They cast Leslie Snipes. I was going to say, which bring, brings me to, like, one of the things I really want to... I think we could spend a lot of time talking about. Whoever the casting director was for this movie yeah. deserved a huge fucking bonus. It is a perfectly cast Well, movie. I've, I've yes. read that basically um, New Line said they would only consider um, three actors for the role of Blade. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was Wesley Snipes. Um, mm-hmm. Second was Denzel Washington. And do you guys do you guys know, or can you guess the Please third? Please Hall. I, I, Please be Arsenio <laughs> Hall. I know, but you Larry said Fishburne. Lawrence Lawrence Fishburne. Okay. I believe he was known professionally as Lawrence Fishburne at this point. Mm-hmm. He's past as Larry Fishburne. Uh, maybe. Um and I could see Fishburne. I couldn't really see yeah, Denzel. Um Denzel, and apparently Goyer Denzel like, like um Goyer wanted Wesley Snipes, you know, from the beginning. Yeah. Like and I I think yeah. I mean, I don't know if you could cast this movie better. <laughs> no, no. So yeah, Snipes I cannot is, is perfect. I mean other than those Spider-Man episodes, this is virtually this is virtually my entire exposure to Blade as a character, and I I cannot imagine him. And also, I don't. But I think that's me. I, I have a. I, I can't really imagine. I think uh, Lawrence Fishburne would do might do okay with the role. I feel like I don't think Lawrence Fishburne, at least at this point, was a big enough star to carry it. Whereas Wesley Snipes was a pretty big, pretty but big also- deal. 
I also think that if you look at kind of Snipes' background and then what he brings into the character, you know, Blade is, he's a dark character, he's an edgy character, but there are moments when you watch it and it's like, oh yeah, that was Wesley Snipes <laughs> acting that particular yes. moment. The, the one that comes to mind for me is very early in the film when uh, he goes to the hospital to uh, track down Quinn and the police start shooting at him instead of the you know horribly charred, scarred <laughs> vampire monster. And he turns to the police officer and shouts, Motherfucker, are you out of your mind? Yes. And I was like, ah, uh, oh, that's what Wesley Snipes brought to the role. His delivery on so many of those lines. There, a lot of the lines are incredibly stupid, <laughs> but he he just has that perfect... That perfect action action movie wise wise mm. ass delivery on so many of them yeah. in a way that Dolph Lundgren does not have. Yeah, no, Dolph no. Lundgren <laughs> cannot deliver snappy one liners to save his. But life. I think in a way, you know, like the this question of casting also tells us something about the adaptation of this film. I mean, because we're not bringing as many expectations to um, the character of Blade that we might for others. Um, there's a way in which. Um, the star has more has more room to work with, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. they have more room to make the character their own, um, and yeah, I I think the comparison to the the Punisher is is perfectly apt, right? I mean, there was there oh, it yeah. was possible for Dolph Lundgren to make Frank Castle his own, and he sort of did, but not not in a very effective way. <laughs> he, he did not make him a compelling no. character. He made him his own. <laughs> he made him a Dolph Lundgren character. Exactly. Um, no, I mean, S- Snipes was was very well cast, and m- maybe before we dive into the next section, we can kind of walk through the rest of the the principal cast. Um, the the antagonist Frost is Stephen Dorff, who I can honestly say I've never seen in anything else, but he seems to still be working. Yeah. He, I think, nowadays he is primarily the. Uh, the pitch man for one of the brands of e-cigarettes. Really? I, th- <laughs> I think Blue, if I remember correctly, and Blue, if you're listening, I'll gladly take your money for plugging your product right now. <laughs> Not that I've ever used them. Yeah, like, uh, every so often on Hulu, I think I get, like, a weird ad where Stephen Dorff extols to me the virtues of e-cigarettes. Wasn't he in, like, Public Enemies or something? Wasn't he some gangster in Public Enemies? or am I... Uh, Maybe? I'm not sure possible hey, yeah i i i'm almost certain i have seen him in other things but i could not for the life of me tell you another thing that steven dorf has been in but at the very least the man's got name recognition exactly <laughs> you know the name um but th- that the casting of dorf as deacon frost though does kind of speak to what you were getting at derek with that flexibility and adaptation um in the comics in the original blade stories uh, Deacon Frost was a much older man, you know, kind of white-haired, classical vampire figure. And he was recontextualized in this movie in, in a very 90s way. Like, you know, he, he's the young, hip, sort of like Amero-Euro trash And he's a guy hacker. Slightly messy hair. And he's a hacker. He, that's exactly what he is. He's a hacker. Yes. He is a yes. hacker. Hackers is another movie that fits into this aesthetic that I'm talking about. A bit more cyberpunky, but still, and still and there. Jo- Johnny Mnemonic. Yes. Yes. No, sort uh, of cyberpunk. Aesthetic. But, but for for the demands of what the film was trying to do, 
um, making that change to the character. It, it works well with Dorf as he is and kind of the, the energy and the presence that he brings. You know, you're, you're not going to up, you're not going to outact Wesley Snipes in this context. You're not going to draw the attention away from his charisma. Mm-hmm. So you, you need someone who can kind of move with that instead of fight against it. Yes. Um, he, he does a fantastic job. He's got a great, yeah. he, he's got sort of that great sort of whiny energy of this entitled prick who wants to rule the world. He has that down pat. Yes. Yes. Um, Actually, I I do remember the last thing I saw Stephen Dorff in. There was a photo on his Wikipedia page of he, Michael Shannon, and Steven Seagal. <laughs> at in like what? A party. At like oh, a party. That, that sounds rage. exactly like the kind of people I imagine Stephen Dorff hangs out with. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, uh, I am blanking. I thought I had this down. Uh, the name of the lead actress. Nabouche Wright. Nabouche Wright, thank you. Uh, as as Karen Jansen. Um, not a character that's given a lot, not an actress, like she's not given a lot to work with, but no. she, she is serviceable. She makes contributions to the plot. Yeah, um, I mean, given her role as kind of the damsel in distress for the hero to save, she, mm-hmm. she, she does play a surprisingly integral role in the plot. But I'm yeah. also not surprised that when Blade 2 comes around, she is nowhere to be seen. Yeah. Writing she, her out is not a particularly surprising decision. She, she didn't register huge, but I'm not sure anyone really would have in that role. Yeah. Um, it's... Well, and we've referenced this before. You know, she She's the Vicky Vale role, if we go back to Burton's Batman. like She's yeah. the entry point into Blade's world. Yeah, essentially, yeah. She's sort of the viewer uh, viewer surrogate there. Okay, but then we get to the really awesome supporting <laughs> guest. Uh, we get Donald Logue. Being Donald Logue! Poss- Don- like, oh. top five actors ever for me. I fucking love Donald <laughs> Logue so much. Have you guys seen Terriers? Just the first couple episodes. How- what? That doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> register. How did you watch the first couple episodes and then not immediately watch the remaining episodes? There's only 13 and it's the greatest show ever. I got distracted. I lo- I loved those first couple episodes, but I just didn't, I I guess like so many viewers, I didn't go back and watch the rest. Ah, oh, I hate you. I hate you with the passion of a thousand dying suns right now. Uh yes. For I mean, for me, Terriers is like the best the best new show on TV for like the last five years. Nothing since its premiere has been better than Terriers. And he was great in uh, Grounded for Life. And he was great in that episode of The X Files he was in. And he was great in everything he's ever been in. He's amazing. I love him. And he was great in this. And yes, and he's great in this uh, as Quinn, uh, Deacon's sort of dumb, bumbling sidekick, chief lackey, uh, who gets to have sort of most of the face-offs with uh, Blade. And the running gag is that he keeps getting his hands chopped off. And through the vagaries of how Blade vampires work, they keep growing back. Uh, and... Then, then he is dispatched hilariously at, the, at like the climax of the film. Like that, they've summoned Lamagra and Deacon's uh, immortal, and uh, Quinn's like, "I'm gonna get you, Blade!" And Blade just fucking slices once, and uh, and Quinn explodes. And I don't even remember the one-liner he gives, but he just dispatches them so quickly. It's the perfect I, "fuck you, you're the you're not the the major threat here." That guy is moment. I don't I don't think he. 
has a one letter. I think he just grabs the sunglasses that Quinn right. was wearing. <laughs> Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe he doesn't. Even, maybe Quinn doesn't even register. Maybe Quinn does not even register a one-liner. That's how mm. minor he is, and yet he's amazing. Yeah. Derek, thoughts on Quinn? Uh, Quinn is is fun. I must confess, my only exposure to Donald Lowe because I never seen Terriers uh, was his <gasps> supporting role in The Patriot. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that he was in That's the Patriot. I saw, I saw was he one of Mel Gibson's sons? Uh no, no. He's yeah. um he's one of the fellow he's one of like his troops. One of his okay. gorilla. I believe supporters. he also plays the king in Vikings, which I haven't seen. Uh the Viking King, because obviously he is a man who would be a Viking king because yeah, he's yeah, amazing. He's Viking. And if I remember correctly, he might be in Zodiac. I feel like he has a small role in Zodiac. But it's the kind of But don't quote me on it. It's the kind of performance that, you know this character needed that Quinn needed because like you're you're just yeah. so happy when he's dead at the end. <laughs> he's he, he mean, is he, he is the lackey. Yeah. Yes. Um but just, just some of the stuff that he's doing, just the the line delivery, the way he kind of throws himself into things. One of my favorite bits in the whole film was when Frost is undergoing like his Lamagra stuff at the end. <laughs> the and de- demons are flying through him and all of that. Uh Quinn kind of thinks that he's going to be involved, but isn't really. And he's standing off at the side watching this stuff happen to Frost. And he kind of pulls his own shirt open for like half a second and then closes it like, oh, this isn't my part yet. There's also I missed that. That's... There's also that moment where, uh, <laughs> where, where Deacon uh, is like, hold out your hand, hold out your arm. Um, and yes. he thinks he's going to get it cut off again. <laughs> and then he's like, I'm just kidding with you. <laughs> it's just this, this odd yeah. little thing. <laughs> yeah. And then when they are uh, descending in their little elevator to the ritual, and Quinn is Quinn is very excited that he's going to get power somehow. He's, I'm going to be a god. <laughs> I'm going to be naughty. Right, right. Yes, I'm going to be the naughty. Yeah. Yeah. It's... yeah. Just, uh, I love Donald Logan this. He's fantastic. Yep. And and he might he might be the best of the supporting cast, but the rest of the supporting cast is amazing. Yes. Um I, I guess Derek, do you want to talk Chris about Chris Christopherson as uh Whistler, and according to Wikipedia, his first name is Abraham. Abraham. Um Sure, so why not? <laughs> his uh his sort of, you know, father figure mentor, um, with a tortured past, vampires killed his wife and children. Which is all you need to know. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, he's a, a hard smoking, uh, gasoline filling, you know, badass. <laughs> um, he's good with technology. He has expertise in in guns and uh, the uh, the medicine needed to uh, prevent people from turning into vampires. And he also apparently has technical expertise in computers because. He's got a hell of a I mean, CV. he really, he, he can do it all. He, he leads a crack team of, uh, <laughs> yes. um, of... He's a fantastic gruff old man Friday. He really is, yeah. <laughs> um, um, and he, he, he gets a great death scene. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, yes. Yeah. Uh, co- covered in blood. He really put, puts up a fight. He's just awesome. He's Chris Christopherson. I mean, come on. I've yeah, I mean... Seen... In, in terms of, like, the perfunctory mentor has to die for dramatic reasons kind of thing, they really do pull you it off it quite well. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so much you're like, well, clearly this character is just here to later die so that it's personal. But, you know, it works. It works here. He, uh, this is actually this and the sequels, spoiler alert, <gasps> um, yeah, are the only thing I've ever seen Chris Christopherson in. I've never seen Heaven's Gate. I've never seen him in any <laughs> other movie. I've never heard him sing. So my, my yes, entire... I'm glad that we brought up that he has a singing career. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, this is uh, this is forever my impression of who Chris Christopherson is. It's him standing in a gaping, like, broken wall and shouting, Did I catch you fuckers <laughs> in a bad time? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, while I was watching this, I was like, isn't he in the second movie? Because it's been like a year or two since I've seen those. What, do you remember what the justification for him coming back I, is? I, I do, and we'll talk about this more when we do the second movie, which I actually okay. think is, is only two movies away from this. Like, it's not that turn far. Out pretty good. Yeah. yeah. But, um, no, it's it's hardly a spoiler. Like, he appears alive in the first five minutes of the second oh, movie. Oh, okay. And, right, and yeah. they, they give a, a, a reasonable justification. Oh, yeah, yeah. Norman Reedus, or whatever his name is, is his whistler in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um... And now. anyway, so so yeah, Christopherson. My image of Chris Christopherson is this movie, and there's just so much like little business that he does in the film that I adore. And you reference this, Derek, when he pulls out a gasoline nozzle, <laughs> splashes gasoline everywhere, puts it in the car, and immediately lights a cigarette. <laughs> oh, oh, and we also forgot to mention he has like a leg brace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's he yeah. For reasons. For reasons, like you never, you never really figure out why he has it, which is amazing. He's I assume, he's I assume, I assume the vampires did it to him. Um, and he just he delivers the the one liners mm-hmm. with such a pomp, and I get I love when uh, he hands Blade the ultraviolet light. Blade says it's still heavy, and he looks him up and down and says, "But you're so big." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. And then rounding off our, our trio of incredible supporting actors is Udo Kier. Udo Kier. Who, who is... The man that Derek did not want it's to be. It's not that I didn't want no. to be him. It's that I, I'd just rather be Chris Christopherson. Udo Kier is a wonderful, wonderful like presence in any movie. Yes. I love yes. seeing him in anything. Um, he was Dr. Frank Mandel in Suspiria. <laughs> he was uh, Albin Grau in Shadow of the Vampire. Which was the first thing I saw him in, and uh, he he was uh, Count Dracula and Doctor Frankenstein in Andy Warhol's Dracula and Andy Warhol's Frankenstein in the seventies, yes. which is an auspicious. And he, did, I mean, he'll appear what? he'll appear in anything, right? I mean, I, what, oh, one yeah. of my favorite he it, was an Iron Sky. Like, I mean, he's he he's in my own private Idaho, so you know, like Gus Van Sant, like art film essentially yep. uh but he's also an ace ventura pet detective <laughs> like <laughs> i had forgotten that it's been a long time since i saw ace ventura i think i think I he's think also, he an, also armageddon. an armageddon yeah yeah yeah, yeah uh, he's the doctor right. <laughs> um i don't remember that at all he's giving them all their physicals right. or their psychological right. and yeah. and he's he's just one of those like great like there, he's just one of those great character actors, right? That, I mean, he's a that yeah. guy, you know, unquestionably. Oh but, yeah, absolutely. I I didn't know what the man's name was until this. Right, but I mean, his his appearance will you know will brighten your day, brighten your film. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
and 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 again, he he has just just some wonderful line deliveries in mm. the movie. Yes. Um, pr- probably the the most memorable being where he stands in front of his petulant <laughs> child Frost and shouts, "Damn it, Frost! I am talking to you." <laughs> yes. I mean, he doesn't. In that introductory scene you were talking about with the. Does the film actually call them the board of directors, or is that just what no, you're no, for that? No, no. I, no, I think that I think they're called the Order of Erebus, but they're clearly a board of directors. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the the strangely multicultural uh, vampire elders. He does a fantastic job in that scene of just sort of setting up like here are the ground rules for vampires. Here is how vampires in Blades in this movie operate. And apparently somehow people are born vampires. They never exactly go into how that happens, which is an unusual... That's not generally how vampires work in my experience. Nope. Do they hatch? I I don't know. I guess the the sterility... I guess the sterility that we associate with so many vampires just is not a thing here. So a vampire and a vampire can get pregnant, I guess. They use the term pure blood, so... Yeah. Yeah, I I think you're right. But it's weird. Yeah, but I just... I can't think of many other vampire mythos that I've seen where uh, vampires are not, by definition, formerly human. It's it's pretty unusual for pure-blood vampires to be. And I kind of like that they don't go into that too much. They, mm-hmm. like, there's that great, to go back to sort of great Chris, Chris Crofter, Chris, Chris Crofterson, God damn it. Chris Christofferson uh, line delivery, like when he's explaining to Karen, like, how vampires mm-hmm. work. It's like, mm-hmm. he's something like, crosses don't do shit, but some of the yeah. other myths are true. Right. They're allergic yeah. to garlic and light and things like that. And he lists like, essentially, essentially crosses are the only thing that doesn't work that you would think wouldn't work. Everything else that you've ever heard about vampires, totally And I true. can't help but think that like, in comparison to sort of like modern vampire media, um, and there yeah. is a lot of it, um, it seems, it seems like, yeah, the this will sound like a negative thing, but they don't do as much work world building, right? In, in play. Yes. They don't dwell on that. And I, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good thing, right? I mean, you don't get bogged down in the mechanics of how all of this works or, you know, like what the politics are. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like something like underworld, which has some interesting things happening, but like gets so bogged down in like, these are how vampires work. These are how werewolves work. Here is the very complicated centuries-old feud and political situation that governs these two races. You just, like, get on to the cool stuff. Well, I, th- I think that's one of the the great strengths of this film. And, you know, you, you said at the beginning, Nick, it's it's not a great film, but it's a cool film. And it, it is a fun f- – like, it's a fun film from start to finish. And I think yeah. one of the things that makes it that – is the writer, the director, and the entire cast seemed keenly aware of the film that they were making. And as a result of that, everything is very expedient. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there's not... At no point are they dwelling on anything. Like, it's a, okay, we know this. Like, these are vampires. Dracula was published 100 yeah. years ago. <laughs> you know how this works. Yes. Um, and they, they just move. And I think part of the benefit of that is you avoid getting bogged down. But part of the benefit is also you really do keep the focus on Wesley Snipes mm-hmm. and yeah. you let him kind of do his thing instead of surrounding him with plot elements that, that are not beneficial. 
Incidentally, when we do do Blade Trinity, we will see what happens when you do surround him with things <laughs> that are not beneficial. Yeah, I've not seen that. To go back oh. to Derek's point about sort of the, the prevalence of vampires, uh, I think one of the interesting things about that in sort of contemporary vampire things is given the, you know, dozen or so different vampire sources you could look at, the, the strange irony of it is that these things sort of force uh, force themselves to describe and explain their vampires far more than something like this mm -hmm. does because mm -hmm. every single vampire uh story inevitably has to explain that these vampires do not work exactly the way well, that different yes uh like it's not like in the movies yeah exactly so you have these a you have like a hundred different versions of vampires and you have to explain all right well crosses do work on them but they can see their reflections and they can go out in the light but they have no powers and they can hypnotize people versus the ones that can't can't go out in the sunlight and they turn into bats and they're smoke monsters or some crap like that uh so the weird thing is that i feel like blade by virtue of there not being as much vampire stuff doesn't actually have to explain vampires as much as we all know vampires, and yet we have to we have to spend so much time explaining. Well, these vampires glow in the dark. Now, incidentally, this was 1998. Mm -hmm. This came out in 1998, yes. which was when the second season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was aired. Ah. Yeah. And uh, again, you know, you the first season of Buffy did spend some time world building and like trying to establish. Okay, the vampires do this. The vampires do that. And the second, they just kind of ignored mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, to, I, to the show's benefit. Yeah, and I think, uh, particularly, uh, to, to not, not to dwell on Buffy too much, but I think, I think one benefit that it did, I mean, early, early vampires in Buffy were very much of this kind of, more along the lines of the board of directors, these kind of very old vampires with, like, long prophecies. And I think one of the strengths in the second season and the third season with introducing vampires like Spike and Mr. Trick was... Uh, sort of showing that there are vampires who don't give a flying fuck about prophecies, that they're not mm -hmm. all this, like, weird old Masonic order living underground. Some of mm -hmm. them are just guys that like to have fun. Mm -hmm. Th there is, uh... They are the Deacon Frost vampires. Well, and if, if we think about sort of that, that opening scene in the rave, in the Frost rave, one of the things mm -hmm. that struck me watching at this time was um, the way it kind of establishes that dynamic... Mm -hmm. very early on and it does so in a couple ways first of all again going back to casting uh do either of you know who the uh who raquel who led heat seeker dennis into the club do you know who that actress was so, no idea tracy lords right it's trace tracy lords oh uh, who, yeah i did not know that famous porn yeah, star tracy lords i don't know that um she's the first vampire we meet in the movie uh-huh and then you have kind of the sexy young vampires all gyrating in the club. And one of the things that struck me in the club was within that club, you are within the first five minutes of the movie introduced to the protagonist, the antagonist, and the antagonist henchman without formally being introduced. You see Frost. You see Frost's Euro trash girlfriend. You see Quinn uh, getting a blowjob in the corner. And then Blade shows Oh, up. Quinn. <laughs> oh, that rascal. But all of this is done very expediently. And by the end of that scene, you know, five, ten minutes into the movie, you know who your protagonist is, you know who your antagonist is, and you have a general understanding of the rules and the relationships between them. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's I have very a, efficient scripting. I have a question about that scene. 
Was it just me, or did it seem like, and I'm very sad that I might have to use his character name because it's a very dumb name, but does it seem like Heat Seeker Dennis was the only human at that party? That was the impression yeah. I got watching it. And it seems to me that if you're going to have a giant, like, rave vampire thing, you're going to lure a lot of people there. Like, something like a third of the people there should be humans, so that when the vampires inevitably have their bloodbath, a very literal blood or blood shower more accurately because of the things, they have some humans to feed on. And there's just this one dope. Where are the rest of the humans you lure here? You vampires, you're doing it wrong. That's actually true. He is the only, like, it is very clearly shown at the end of the scene. He and the charred corpse of, uh, of Quinn are the only things left in the club. Yeah, why Why is Tracy Lord the only vampire there taking the initiative to lure something, somebody, to the feeding frenzy? What the oh. fuck? It's poorly this is not. This is not how a potluck works. <laughs> She's the only one who understands how potluck works. To your, to your point, uh, Stefan, about sort of narrative expediency here, um... I think that also sort of gets the question of like adaptation and you know what media have you know advantages um, in certain respects, right? So I mean, if you're if you're doing a, a feature film, you know, two hour running time, yeah, you need that expediency. Um, and if you try to do world building, unless you do it a very specific way and you know with some amount of efficiency, it's going to bog down your your film, right? It's going to bog down your text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as opposed to something like TV or comics, where there's more kind of opportunity for for long form narrative, where you can actually really build these these interesting kind of worlds. Yeah, and I think going back to sort of the idea of Blade being a third tier character, I think also goes into that because obviously there's a lot less baggage there. Is he's a, he's a relatively recent character when this movie came out, and as Stefan said, he's not a character that's ever like had a long run in his own thing so he doesn't he doesn't have like a long established you don't have to like well and here's his well-established love interest and here's his jimmy olsen and here's his uh jj well, jj jameson and so on and so forth he had actually he had been around since the mid-70s i mean he, he he was more than 20 years old at this point but yeah. no writer had really taken him and said i'm going to you know, build this character in the way that this character needs to be built. I mean, he the the defining thing of Blade that we think about is, you know, he, he is has all of the vampire's strengths and none of their weaknesses. He is the Daywalker. Until this film came it's out, a day he, walker. Was, he was not that. Like, a story was written in comics afterwards explaining how he then became the Daywalker. Up until that point, he was just kind of like a super strong black vampire hunter. I didn't huh. know that. Yeah, I mean the the, the film. It's a much better. It's a much better story. Yeah, and the the film contributed significantly to to who yeah. the character actually is and how how the character is perceived. Um, let's see other members of the supporting cast. One one more member of the supporting cast, and then there's more meat to to get into here. Is Blade's mother? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, who who is played by? I'm I'm probably going to mispronounce the name. Uh, Sana Lathan. Latin? Latin? Lathan? Not sure. Um, who, uh, again, has done plenty of other things. She is uh, she is the voice of Cleveland's wife on The Cleveland Show for oh. near, nearly 100 episodes now. Uh, there is a series of... Uh, well, a series. There are, there are 
Yeah, there are two films. Uh, the Best Man and The Best Man's Holiday with like Harold Perrineau and, T- and uh, Tay Diggs. Mm. And oh Ray yeah, that one that, uh, that one that just came out and for some reason a bunch of people were surprised that, uh, you know, something aimed at an African-American audience would be a successful movie. Well, again, I mean, that that was a sequel to a successful movie yes. aimed at an African... It was 14 yeah. years later. But she was in both of those films. Um, what else? There was one other thing that she had done. But anyway, a... a you know, not a fairly su- successful actress cast in an early role as Blade's mother. Um, I thought she she did a, a really good job. There were weird Oedipal overtones throughout. Oh, yeah. Um, but my, my favorite thing uh, about her in the film is one of the things that they did very well with the vampire makeup in the film was they made the fangs manageable. Mm. Like, the, they were always present but never overbearing. Except with uh, with Saint Alatham, or Lathan. Uh, she had these enormous, like, old hammer horror-style fangs. And in the final scene where, you know, spoiler alert, Blade, I must release you, uh, k- kills his mother. She has these enormous fangs in and is pleading with him. And she sounds like fucking Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Please, Eric, I'm your mother. You wouldn't kill your mother. And it's just like, oh, my God. Um... So I don't. So are you are you are you positing that as a positive or a negative for Faye? <laughs> I, just, I don't I don't know which uh, which makeup artist she pissed off, but she was notably the only vampire in the movie to be saddled with these. Um, I don't know. I well, can't say it's something. I, I mean noticed. that, that it, it, I didn't notice it either, but I would also imagine that it was probably intentional. I mean, obviously, making her as monstrous as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know. Very, uh, a lot of the roots of the Tomb of Dracula comic originally were in Hammer Horror. Oh yeah, Obviously. and that the, the, the tribute is is a little. It's there. There, there was a uh, the second Christopher Lee Dracula movie called Dracula Prince of Darkness, mm-hmm. which is a, a really wonderful Dracula movie. Has an has an actress in it who does who has the same damn problem. Like she can't say her lines for the thing she has. Um. Yeah. <laughs> um. Th- there is an element of. You know, for, for lack of a better term, there's an element of race mm. in the film. Oh. Um, <laughs> no, th- throughout you cast the blackest man alive as your as your leading man. There's going to be an element of race. What are you well, talking about, Stefan? What are I mean, you not, talking about? Not, not even that. And the the thing that kind of sparked me thinking about this was the whole pure blood versus turned thing. I yeah. mean, F- Frost's motivation is driven in large part because he is not, by his very nature, the thing that he wants to be. He is not. In, he's not vampire enough. He's not white enough to be the creature that he wants to be. And so he engineers this plot to achieve that level of transformation. And that dissatisfaction with his own identity on that level is what drives his actions. Now contrast that with Blade, who is, again, he's the blackest man alive, (laughs) the biggest, baddest, blackest vampire hunter that there could be. As the counterpoint, I think that there's some, some thematic depth there. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I agree. Though, though, I mean, <laughs> yes. Uh, though, I mean, as, as an interesting, 
there's also a way that it's a it's a lighting race by the the very nature of the board of directors who we have pointed out is racially diverse. I Incredibly mean, there's the multicultural. There's the inconceivably. There's the there's the black vampire with the dreadlocks. There's kind of the fat Asian one. There's clearly uh, sort of. Uh, multiple kind of european ethnicities uh i'm sure some other ethnicities pop up in there as well um so it, i mean it's interesting of course that the that that the the, the whitest contingent of vampires deacon's contingent because i mean his core group is all is all white uh versus the multicultural ones uh who he who he has to sacrifice in order to get the blood god blood hurricane la magra la magra <laughs> Uh, to uh, you really have to say it like that. You also you've been saying it wrong. It's not Daywalker. It's Daywalker. Uh, uh, they all have to be sacrificed for his, you know, perfect, perfect for utopia of white vampires. Yeah. So yes, it's definitely there. I yes. agree. <laughs> Thank you. Derek, Derek, would you like to prop up this allegory a little um, bit more? <laughs> you know, I I guess part part of me is sort of like jaded about uh, you know discussions of uh of, of race and vampirism and Oh yeah. Uh, I oh, mean yeah. for obvious reasons. And you know like, never come up before. No one's ever thought right. of that. <laughs> I don't know. I I've just I've 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 graded too many too many papers about this kind of stuff that <laughs> i have no i have no strong opinion on it anyway uh yeah. but yeah i mean you know it's it's definitely there's definitely also you know considerations for for exhibition here right i mean you know if you wanna if you want to capture um you know an african-american audience and this this is off this is a, like a, a discourse in hollywood is um you know yeah getting getting the african-american audience um especially you know the um portion of the audience that lives um in cities where kind of the highest grossing theaters are um uh-huh. you know that's there's there's a kind of cold hard industrial concern there as well um and so oh, yeah. you know the cast i think the casting works there and kind of really playing up the you know the both the blackness of blade and the whiteness uh-huh. of deacon frost um, you know, there's. <laughs> I mean, I mean to go to go out in the sunlight. It's an incredibly to... white name. <laughs> it's a very white name, and also, I mean, he, to go out in the sunlight, he has to slather himself in uh, sunscreen. That's true. It's so it's much true. sunscreen. You know, so yes, like <laughs> race is there, and it's and it's pretty out there in in the open, yeah. and you know, you're. You're you're playing into into people's pleasures there, right? I mean, for totally. for oh, a cinema that doesn't yeah, have definitely. all that many kind of you know black leading heroes, um, mm-hmm. you know you're <laughs> you know you're you're gonna take pleasure in in seeing Wesley Snipes you know beat up this white guy. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you can definitely you can definitely draw some pretty clear through lines from. Uh, from blade back to shaft mm-hmm. i mean they're yeah. obviously oh yeah oh yeah that obviously Imagine I, i'm blade not sure i'd go so far as to call blade outright an ex uh, black exploitation film but it obviously owes a lot of debt to those kinds of movies and if it were made in the 70s it would have been <laughs> oh yeah you could i could I, easily oh. imagine obviously maybe uh sex up karen a little bit more and obviously 
She's <laughs> Pam Greer, Richard Roundtree, yeah. or uh, or Fred Williamson. She does have that like Fred Williamson, absolutely Fred Williamson. No offense <laughs> yeah, to Richard yeah, Roundtree, but absolutely Fred, Fred Williamson. Uh, she uh, Karen does have that like that like cut off um, above the midriff yeah. like beater, <laughs> which she yes. she put she quite de- clearly puts on after her like first <laughs> right. experience in the field. It's like all right, this is wartime. I'm putting on my war. Incidentally, tank. also yeah. like. <laughs> There's some throwaway throwaway line about how they they stole all this equipment from the hospital. Like, <laughs> so does does the hospital now not have any of their blood testing equipment? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's they okay. had extra. She used her sexy hematology powers to like stockpile I, I guess. extra equipment for all the time she blows up tel- uh, not the other interesting uh, microscopes. The other interesting thing I was reading about this film is that, um, and you don't really get much of a hint of this in the film itself. I mean, you might, I mean, really from the outdoor shots, you would think it was set in New York, but apparently it's set mm-hmm. in New Orleans. Um, I would have guessed L.A. Yeah, I was thinking either L.A., San Francisco, or New York. I don't think Los An- I don't New think Orleans? New Orleans has a big Chinatown, and given that yeah, there's no, a I major know. sequence set in a Chinatown, Your giant skyscraper. No, I know, but like um, the there there's there's a point at which um, is it Whistler is holding a map, um, and it's not a map of of New York or Los Angeles. There's there's very mm. clearly a kind of looping river system, and if I'm not mistaken, I was also re- like in the comics, a lot of the stories take place in New Orleans. Um, I mean, New Orleans obviously makes sense for a vampire milieu. New Orleans is very popular for vampires, but <laughs> nothing about you say that like it's a real estate market for vampires. Well, a lot I of mean, vampires live in. Uh, I mean, between Rouge. interview for the va- uh, interview for a vampire, which obviously is largely set there, and now you right now have the the originals, the Vampire Diaries spinoff, which is set in New Orleans, and there's a bunch of other stuff there. It's Son not of Dracula a, with Son of Dracula. Dracula. It's certainly not an unprecedented setting, but absolutely nothing in the film would suggest to me that this movie is supposed to be set in uh, New Orleans. I know. If it was so, meant to be set in, no. if it was supposed to be set in New Orleans, they should have sent a second unit team and gotten some some shots of uh, the French Quarter because I did not get that. All at I'm all. saying is that there, were, that there yeah. were definitely like nods that this was supposed to be in New Orleans. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I'm, uh, well, and by nods, I mean Chinatown. Nod. I mean the map. <laughs> It's a map of New Orleans. <laughs> the skyscrapers of New Orleans. Um, yeah. Speaking uh, speaking of the Chinatown sequence. Yeah, we need it... to talk about the return of the late, of the yellow yes, peril. The yellow, the yellow yes. peril is back. I, I feel like I feel like this may be the stretchiest we've gone for <laughs> yellow peril, but it might be there. The fact the fact that like the major like the major like pre-climax uh confrontation between frost and uh blade where frost's threat against all humanity very specifically involves shots of an entirely asian crowd that's Um, weird yep also i mean you're talking about the park scene right yeah okay so i we'll talk about the park and then we got to go back to the nightclub right but the park um okay yes okay okay so the park um it was a really weird scene for a couple reasons. One was because um, the conversation that they're having feels like something was lost in editing. Like, it's very <laughs> clipped. It's very like, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to answer another question sort of thing. But not in a dodgy way. 
Yes. Um, but, but second, they're in a public park in broad daylight having this conversation. Blade has swords and guns strapped to him. There are people around them. One point in the conversation involves Frost picking up a small Asian child by her neck and then throwing her through a hot dog stand. And no one reacts. Until, like, oh, yeah. until the black man starts firing his gun. Then everybody's like, ah! <laughs> It's like everyone is shockingly cool with this happening. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, it's just another one of those things. Like like in fact, like when the scene first started and like I had forgotten how it went, like I saw this Asian child who seemed to be surprisingly calm about it. I was like, oh, it's a it's a tiny tiny child vampire, which you sometimes see mm. and are extra creepy. But no, she's just this random child that Frost is uh threatening for some reason. Yeah. Throw yeah. through a goddamn hot dog stand. She should have been dead when she hit the pavement. Yes. Uh, and yeah, it just seems very, it's very interesting to set that scene in uh, in a Chinatown, which again, I'm almost certain New Orleans does not have. Uh, and That's yeah, so I mean, the, the, the major thrust, other than perhaps the weirdly edited question and answer, is uh, Frost's sort of major villain speechifying moment where he talks about how La Magra will cleanse this land of the vermin that are uh, that are that is humanity and all of the shots of sort of all of the people who will die are these crowds of you know the denizens of chinatown <laughs> it's true um, but i mean can, can we talk about yellow peril as perverted japanese businessmen yeah we gotta yeah, yes. do that let's do that as well i <laughs> that, forgot about that, that was, element that was such a weird scene like it was yes. Okay. Derek, you, you right. So I mean, um, Blade is um, is uh, tracking um, uh, Krieger, 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 the familiar. Um, you know the yes. who, and I guess you explained it in the um, in the synopsis. But um, basically, he's tracking Krieger to try and find the entrance to the sort of you know vampires' <laughs> lair. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so he goes down into this, into this like weird. Cl- I'm, I'm trying to remember. This is after he goes through um, the the refrigerator door, right? Like Krieger says, the entrance what? is in here. Was this before that? Oh, okay. So, so you're talking about when he actually goes down into the archives before. Before, we go down yeah. Into okay. The so this is before he goes. We, down. we need to talk about the room yeah. of Japanese businessmen. I couldn't remember. Underage I couldn't girls. remember if this was through the refrigerator door or before the refrigerator. So it's before. No, okay. this is the seemingly legitimate front yeah, for the exactly. vampires. <laughs> yeah, the seemingly legitimate front, which consists entirely of seedy Japanese businessmen watching underage <laughs> girls in their underwear sing Japanese, sing Japanese hip-hop. hip-hop. Yeah, it's uh, it's very strange. <laughs> Happens all the time. <laughs> yes. After that, they go through the freezer. Yes. And they find... The archive. Pearl. The archive. <laughs> and in the archive, I think this this is what you were. Uh, they find Pearl. <laughs> the <laughs> um, how how does one oh, describe God, Pearl? Um, hmm. the blob. The blob. <laughs> the blob um, I was I was reminded of Total Recall, like the woman, the like masked woman in in Total Recall. <laughs> Pearl looks a little Pearl bit. Looks yeah. sort of like that. Um, but yeah, I'm completely naked. Uh, <laughs> Pearl doesn't wear yeah. clothes. Um, there's also a fart joke. Um, 
Yep. Unless I'm mistaken. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Her- horrifically huge. Uh, Nick, there was a, a character on the third season of Buffy, like the big fat vampire in the tub that Christian Clemenson paid, played. Um, oh, um, I know who you're talking like, about. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yes, it's a, it's a lot like that. It was like that, that, but a lot more horrific. Yes. And, and uh, with this weird high pitched voice. Yeah, weird. Yeah, and actually, I, if I remember correctly, I thought, uh, I, w- I thought I remember being surprised when Blade used some masculine pronouns towards Pearl. I think, yeah. despite the name and the voice, Pearl might actually be supposed to be a man. The actor was a man. It's er- guy's name is Eric Edwards. Yeah, but the, the very, very high-pitched voice, and obviously Pearl, at least to me, reads as a female name. Uh, I was surprised when Pearl apparently is, is, is a male horrific blob vampire. And in, in some ways, that's uh, this is the point where um, Blade, but especially Karen, are actually not very sympathetic. Because um, no. Karen is, is equipped with this um, basically UV high-powered flashlight thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the course of uh, trying to figure out sort of um, what's going on, uh, they interrogate her and basically like torture her with this like UV lamp, and oh yeah, and she starts getting like burns everywhere or heat. Um, yes, it, it's kind of, it's kind of disturbing. In a, in you know <laughs> what you would expect would be a disturbing film, but it's to me that was the most there, the weirdest are, moment. There are multiple points in the film. And I guess this kind of thematically plays into the idea of Blade as, you know, he, he is a man, but he is also has this darkness within him, this creature within him. There are several points in the film where he is incredibly unsympathetic. Um, he, he deliberately uses Karen as bait and waits until she is actually physically assaulted to step in and do anything. Yes. Um, several times, guns just being pulled in broad daylight to shoot people dead for... No real reason. Also, no one really reacts to any of these. Um, you know, he is, uh, and and then the entire Pearl sequence. He's not a very nice guy, which is okay and kind of works within the context of the movie. But it's again, you, I think I think part. It, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. In, in the Punisher, when we see Frank kind of going on his his vengeance quest. We know that he's outside the law and all that, but we are never at any point led to believe that, like, Frank Castle is in the wrong. Well, and and one of the things that, like, makes... When when your movie has a kind of anti-hero, you know, or a kind of, you know, dark hero, usually the way you make that work in the script is by making your villain a lot worse, right? I mean, we we sort of judge Mm. um, our our morals kind of relatively. Um, And here, I think, you know, that works for the most part. But for me, at least... It's the fact that, like, they torture Pearl. Like, you actually... I don't think you ever see Deacon torture anyone. Like, he kills plenty of people um, Uh and dismembers and and whatnot. But he never actually... I don't think he tortures anyone. Am I wrong about that? I don't... Uh, he he throws Dragon Eddie into the sun to kill him. But it's not any... It's not like an extended... He's like... He does tear out the fangs before he throws him into the sun. Yeah. But it's still, like, you don't get that... you don't get that extended scene where you're consciously saying he is torturing this person. And part of it is, like, they, they make a little joke out of it uh, at the end of that sequence, right? It's like, um, mm-hmm. if, yeah. you know, if he moves, fry him. Um, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> he moved. He moved. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's kind of odd. Kind of off-putting. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Um, yeah. O- other things uh, that kind of jumped at you about the film. Like, it, what, what else did you... Uh... Uh, let's talk about the visual effects. Um, this <laughs> some, okay. of which some of which succeeded and some of which didn't. Um, it La you know for nineteen ninety eight this is this is pretty much state of the art effects for, yep. for ninety eight. Um, not shockingly, the practical effects much more yes. convincing <laughs> than the digital effects. Um, mm-hmm. so you know you're. I think the you know the the blood effects maybe aren't. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, no, the blood. Noth- for, nothing particularly looked worse. Um, yeah, nothing looked worse like, than the film. Yeah, the blood effects, like people exploding mm. and things I like think that, or part of the Bagra. Part of it is whatever effects house they um, they hired to do this, uh, or I don't know, maybe New Line did it in house. I I don't know much about <laughs> the way effects houses worked in the late nineties, but um i think they may have assumed that oh it's blood it pools it forms puddles we can use a kind of like really geometric system to sort of make the blood and i think as a result all the blood looks it looks really fake just because it's circular like the droplets are are too perfect um and it doesn't have that kind of sense of viscosity um i think what they succeeded in um, a lot more was actually the um, sort of disintegration effects after Blade, like, oh, yeah. you know, Those were good. stakes oh, someone. Oh, yeah, the disintegration works for Yeah, um, and even the effects where um, the um, <laughs> the council, the uh, the business council, um, when the, when the, when they're, like, skulls, like, jump out of them and turn into, like, flying yes. angels, that was pretty cool. I mean... I yes. loved that. If not, it was for just the a cool idea. It, yeah. it was such a yeah. cool idea. Yes. Again, um, going back, it's a very cool movie. Yeah. A, a couple more things about that climax and the the whole final fight sequence after Blade has uh, has jumped down into the room and readied himself for the attack. Um, when he is fighting off Frost's henchmen. Nick, oh, okay, you 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 locked up for a second. Oh. When he's fighting off Frost's henchmen, uh, there is a moment where he very clearly rips out a man's throat and yes! then throws it at yes! another man. <laughs> Ooh, I missed that detail. <laughs> it, it was done very yeah. subtly. Like he reached, he reached forward, like jerked out his hand, grabbed another guy's throat, pulled it back. You can kind of see the guy there without a throat. <laughs> and uses it as a weapon. <laughs> uses it as a weapon. Throws it in another guy's face. There, there's well done, but I, well I love done. gags like that where like oh, yeah. body parts are used as weapons, or if not body parts, then like sort of bits of clothing that the henchman had or something like that. Th- that's always great in fight sequences. And it was, uh, it was the fact that attention was not drawn to it that I loved so much. And, and uh, again. There, there were things in the film that were attention-worthy that attention was not drawn to. And the, the obvious example is at the People Factory in the beginning. Mm-hmm. When they're walking through to get to the rave, and there are cows hung up everywhere. And there are, if you're looking, a couple of people strung up in there. <laughs> and then kind of a cart of people gets 
dragged by. And Heat Seeker Dennis at one point kind of jerks his head back like, what was that? But he's too drunk and too focused on Raquel to not really care. Um, and subtle it just, vampires, it, subtle. Exact, well, the attention is not drawn mm. to it. Yes. And it, it becomes texturing. And you, you, know, we, you talked about world building earlier. Not a lot of attention is paid to building a mythology or building the idea of the world. But there is world building insofar as there are details in the film that are not explicitly pointed out, but are clearly there and give this impression of something larger mm. going on. And, uh, you know, like, yeah, um, little moments of humor, too. Like, I mean, as, mm. as sort of dark as the mm-hmm. film is, like, it has enough humor to where you do get some relief kind of periodically. Which is incidentally something yeah. that I think the Christopher Nolan Batman movies are are sorely lacking. Like at the end of one of those, you're Humor. just sort of like, ugh, like that was really good, but yeah. ugh, like give me a break. I, I adore them, but they they are yeah. bleak. Yeah. They're not happy yeah. films. Yes, yeah, there's yeah, that's true. There's not much in the way um, of uh, comedy, but yeah, you got a lot of it here. I mean, you got some great one-liners from Blade and from Whistler, and again, you've got Quinn, who is fantastic. <laughs> oh, Quinn. I, I loved uh, an, another little detail from that climax. When Deacon is going through his Lamagra thing and he gets the drop of blood on his head that smears, uh-huh. and and then he walks around for the rest of the film looking like Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> yes. I really loved that. Um, let's see what else. Um, there was one... Th- Again, there... In a film like Blade, which is focused on expediency of plot above all else, you you had the magical little formula that makes vampires explode mm-hmm. by overloading their blood. Sure. It's an anticoagulant. Yep. Totally would yep. work. Yep. Um, at one point, Frost takes that from Blade and throws it off of a cliff for all intents mm-hmm. and purposes. It is later not only fine, but embedded in rock. <laughs> So it was thrown with sufficient force to embed it in rock, but not sufficient force to break glass <laughs> vials. Which was convenient. Truly. Yes, works out well. Yeah. And then, of course, the the uh, the final fate of our friend Deacon. Um. Oh. <laughs> our friend Deacon. If only he hadn't opened himself up with that outlandish, panth- like, leaping frog panther attack. <laughs> Where he jumped in the air and threw all limbs up. Ah! Look, you and I have never been possessed by Lamagra, but that's just how Lamagra do. That's true. That's true. We can't speak from experience. Um, Derek, I know that you were briefly possessed by Lamagra back in 97. Can you speak from your experience? uh, I'd rather not talk about that right now. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I, sh- I shouldn't have brought that up on you. It was hard enough getting through the film. Sorry. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> sorry. Um, sorry. And, of course, Blade's, Blade's final great declaration that some motherfuckers are indeed <laughs> trying always skate. trying to ice skate up. <laughs> you know? um, yes. I, I assume you guys know the, the origin behind that line. Oh, I don't. Do I? Okay. No, I don't think I do. That, that tell us, was, Stephen, tell us. That that line was, according to legend, um, that line was not in the script originally. Nor was it something that was ad-libbed 
on set. Wait, what? <laughs> it it was yeah yeah, it got put into the script after Dave Goyer heard Wesley Snipes say it in casual conversation. <laughs> <laughs> like th- this was just a thing that Wesley Snipes said. Awesome. And Goyer said, "Oh, that has to be in the film." See, that's that's how you know that's... when your film has good casting. You know when exactly. when your star yes. brings something unique to the character. <laughs> yes. On the one hand, I don't exactly know what that means, but on the other hand, it's something that I have it's something that I've in no way surprised to learn that Wesley Snipes would just say casually. What, what, like what do you th- my what do you... very my my very very rudimentary surface level understanding of what Wesley Snipes may or may not be like as a person? I expect that he would say things like that. What do you think it means, Nick? Some people are always trying to do things the hard way. Yes, yeah. that's exactly it. Or things that are impossible. But it okay. I guess it just doesn't seem... I mean, it's a cool line, but it also seems not entirely apropos to the situation at hand, wherein they have just exploded La Magra. <laughs> yeah. And if it, it, in some ways, it feels like in some ways, that story makes a lot of sense because it feels like something that is like, well, that's a really cool line. We're going to need it somewhere. Uh, we'll have it be the sort of ultimate one-liner. I guess Even if context- it's not exactly right for the context. Yeah, contextually, I mean, Frost at this Frost is not trying to ice skate uphill at this point. Like He, no. he is, for all <laughs> intents and purposes, one. Blade is the motherfucker what is trying to ice skate uphill. Yeah. Insofar as he's fighting the blood god. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I understand what it means. It's just in context. What yeah. is what is Blade's thought process when he puts together this improbable string of words? Mm. How does I own that shirt that you're wearing, Stefan? <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Mm. Yes, we both got that shirt. We did. Yes. Podcasts are a visual medium. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we all have faces Stephen for podcasts. Stefan is wearing a shirt that I that I own as well. Mm. For pictures, for for our listeners at home, yes, for our viewers at home, um, yeah, it's thanks for kind of ruining the end of the movie for me, Nick, by pointing out the contextual inappropriateness of that line. I mean, if you if you could find a, a contextually appropriate time to use that in your day to day life, more power to you. I think that you should seize that opportunity the first chance you get. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't want this to become like a cliche thing that you say, because obviously that will ruin the specialness of it. But if you could find the perfect time to to bust that out, that may be the crowning achievement of your life. I it's sort it's sort of the same way I treat uh, at thirty thousand feet, your heart will freeze and beat no more. It's not one that I throw out on a daily basis, but if the context is right, then I, then I'll throw that one out there. <laughs> I'm just imagining a context where somehow you're in that situation, like you're at 30,000 feet, and you say that, and the person you're with, like, was that a fucking Batman and Robin quote? What the I'd fuck? like to think that you would say that um, trying to convince one of us not to climb Mount Everest. 
Like, Dooge gets a right. wild hair. And this is absolutely yeah. the kind of thing Dooge would get a wild and hair would, for to climb Mount and you Everest. you would say, no, Dooge, at 30,000 no, feet, 30, your heart will feet, freeze and beat no more. Your heart will freeze and beat no more. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. We have to convince him to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> well, we do. You can't be a part of it. Uh, okay. Otherwise, it'll be disingenuous when you try and talk about it. I will suddenly start yeah, trying to convince to him. to me. And be like, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. Alright, so I will start subtly influencing him. And I will also plant the suggestion that you might be interested in going with him too. So when he plans this, he will come to you. And Ah. say, I've heard through the grapevine that you would want to climb Mount Everest. Would you like to climb Everest? But dude, at at 30,000 feet, your heart will freeze and beat no more. (laughs) This is possibly the most convoluted setup to a line from, uh, to using a line from Batman Robin ever conceived by man. Uh, we'll do it, and then we'll write Don't a Don't leave the Batcave without it. We'll, we will then write a letter, handwritten letter, signed by all of us, to Akiva, Akiva Goldsmith, and thank him for all, for his contributions to our scheme. Uh... God bless that man for writing those lines. Uh, I watched it uh, last weekend. Uh, had some friends over, and we watched it. It was wonderful. <laughs> yes. So, Blade. Blade, the movie we're talking about. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess a couple couple notes as we kind of speed toward the wrap-up, just before we get into the th- big thematic stuff at the end. Uh, I dug the Blade mobile. Yeah. Um, 68 Charger. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a cool, got a cool car. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? <laughs> I really like again going back to the idea of Blade as not a terribly sympathetic character at times. I loved the fact that when he either kills vampires or attacks familiars, he steals their watches and uses watches <laughs> as a form of currency to buy his serum. Yep. Yes, this ain't the march of dimes. <laughs> <laughs> My. Which, as great as some of his other lines is, that for me is the is the greatest uh, delivery that Wesley Snipes has in that uh, in that movie. Yeah, we ain't exactly the much of dimes. Uh, what else did I have here? Um, that is a good deal. <laughs> ah, yeah, I'm so glad I made a note of this. In the scene where Krieger, having had the hell beaten out of him by Blade goes back to Deacon Frost's swank Jackie Treehorn-style penthouse apartment. Sure. Um, he passes a couple of young vampires watching a movie on television. Do either of you remember what that movie was? Because I recognized it immediately. I, I don't. I don't know what it was. No, Derek, do you I don't know? remember. Stephen? They were they were watching Mortal Kombat. <laughs> they were watching Paul W. S. Anderson's Mortal Kombat. Okay, fair enough. Which I thought was a delightful. nice touch. Um, what else? Whistler is so crusty. Um, <laughs> but you're so big. That's a great line. Um, <clears throat> I love that Deacon Frost is doing his advanced hacking decryption stuff. 
on a very old school power book. Yes. Um, yes. A gray with, power with the book. old rainbow apple. Yeah. Gray power book. Um, very classy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? What else? What kind else? of shit you br- the kind of shit you can bring a uh, alien mothership down with. It's true. Yep. Yep. De- good for de- good for that and for decrypting ancient vampire prophecy. You know, it was because it brought a mothership down that I believed it could decrypt a vampire <laughs> prophecy. Yes, its capability exactly. had been established. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Oh yeah, yeah. What, what one again? In terms of like little details in the movie, when uh, they are having their confrontation in the vampire archives and. Before Quinn and his men break in, there is a young African-American girl who may or may not be a vampire who runs through and is kind of like the bait that is causing Blade to pause. And he goes to help her, and she jumps up and attacks him. Her mode of attack is she stands in one place and kicks at his head about eight times in a row without moving. It looked like Chun-Li in Street Fighter 2, standing in one place going, Yeah, 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 yeah. The very was, effective move. It, it was not very effective. She kicked him once. It was and then very he impressive. A I mean, year old girl. It wasn't terribly effective, but her moves were pretty impressive, despite the fact she was standing yeah. standing in one place. Yes, it, it didn't end well for her. <laughs> no. Um, any other thoughts before we uh before we wrap up? Is this the first time that we uh, have talked for less than the running time of the film? I think it is. I. We could keep talking. Uh, I, I'm fine. Maybe that's an indication not... of Blade's quality, folks. Maybe. Yeah. G- generally, we have a lot of, you know, this is why it went wrong, this is why it went wrong, and this is a lot more like, you know, who's really good at this? Chris Christopherson. He was great. Yeah, let's yeah. move on. I mean, in yeah, in some good. sense, like, this this is, you know, it's unquestionably the most successful of the films we've watched so far. I'm not, not even, oh, not, yeah. you know, both, both critically and, and commercially, but in some ways, if I had to choose between this and the Punisher to watch again, I'd choose the Punisher. There's something, yeah. there's something more interesting about that film. And it's called Barriato. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might agree with that, although I think part of that might be, I mean, at this point, as I said, I've probably seen Blade three or four times, whereas I've only seen Punisher Well, this was once. my first time seeing Blade, uh, and so now I've seen uh, both okay. The Punisher and Blade only once. Um, I feel okay. like I understand Blade pretty well. Like, I mean, I don't know if there's much yeah, more to like, say I feel or discover like as, about it. As much as I, yeah, as much as I enjoy Blade, I don't think watching it again will necessarily, like, discover much more about it. I feel like... It's all kind of on the surface level. I think there's some nice things to appreciate in Punisher. And again, I also just kind of, I too kind of appreciate in general kind of watching things that are close to hitting the mark. There's something about those movies that aren't that far away from not being horrible that I do find intriguing. Well, a, a, uh, a, a near failure or a uh, a near success is all is more interesting than a success. Yeah, I think that's true. Um but also, I think while while we're putting in this the context of uh, the other films that we've watched, I think it is probably important to remember that other than Howard the Duck, this is really the only one that has been a, a big budget movie. Yeah, that, that's true, and and I mean the last one we watched was supposed to have been made for a million dollars, right? 
Actually, if, if we adjust for inflation, how are the duck costs significantly more than this adjusted for inflation? This was forty five in, this was forty five million forty five million in nineteen ninety seven dollars versus uh thirty five million in nineteen eighty six dollars. Oh yeah. Obviously obviously Howard the Duck cost a lot more to make than this movie and it shows but in bad ways. <laughs> shows how much money you can waste. Yeah. Incidentally, just like I, the fact that this film was made for what was it, forty five million? You said, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it just uh, I think it's a, a sort of testament to um, how how differently this kind of film would be made today. Like you would, oh yeah, if it, if it weren't a hundred million today, it would exactly. Not be like you'd you'd need at least a hundred, probably more like a hundred and fifty million uh, budget mm-hmm. to make this movie today. Yes, mm-hmm. just a sign of the decreasing market for cinema. <laughs> I, I think that's part of it. And also, I mean, if this movie were made today, just the fact that Blade was a Marvel Comics character sure. would have, A, boosted the budget considerably, and B, um, you know, a gross of, what was it again, 100 and, uh, $131 million. Um that that would be considered a, a tremendous disappointment. Yes, I mean just expectate the expectations have changed so dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, really, in a way, this was kind of the starting point of that. Like th- this was the first, like, genuinely successful comic book film that was not Batman or Superman. Yes, and. Yeah. You know, w- without this, there isn't an X-Men film a mm-hmm. couple years later. There is not... Spider-Man. A Spider-Man film. I mean, th- th- this is sort of the first domino to fall. And it's it's interesting to think about, you know, how they got to this after the failures that we've kind of seen. I mean, Punisher failed for its casting. Howard the Duck, I almost don't even want to count, just because mm. it's such a, a strange thing. But... Fucking you know, bizarre. Yeah, Captain America and the Fantastic Four, by the nature of the property, had every right to be significantly more successful than this. Yeah. And the the execution completely doomed them. It's almost like it was easier to begin with something... I mean, they had to begin with something small. They had to begin with something that could just be done as its, its own thing. Yeah. Before you could get to something like the X Men, which had real cultural cash. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that it would be very easy to watch this movie without ever knowing that there was a comic book associated with it. That this character existed in comics, and probably, to be perfectly honest, most people who watched this movie when it came out probably didn't know that, or didn't. Or I mean, it wasn't obviously. Marvel's Blade in the way that something is Marvel's Thor or Marvel's Captain America nowadays. I didn't know it until two weeks ago when you said the next film was going to be Blade. <laughs> it's like you didn't know Blade was a Marvel movie. Well, huh. you, you you should you should have known in uh, when the opening credits were rolling. You saw Stan Lee's name in the opening credits. Notice how Stan Lee did not create or contribute to the creation of Blade. <laughs> that could be but his, that his could name be any credits. That could be any Stan Lee. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. A very very common name. I remember I can't remember which one it was. I think it might have been Spider Man Two when I was watching that with a friend in the movie theater, and Stan Lee's inevitable uh, cameo came up, 
And the person I was sitting next to leaned over to me and said, that's Stan Lee. And for, I, for some reason, hadn't noticed that. And when I heard him say that, I read it as just one name, Stanley. And I'm like, I don't know who the fuck you're talking about. What? Who's, who's Stanley? It's Stanley. What? It was only later, like, talking to him afterwards. I was like, oh, Stanley. Stanley. Yes, I know who you're talking about now. I was like, Stanley? Which means probably that man's name is Stanley Lee. It is, uh, it is Stanley Lieber. Lieber? Lee is not as... Lee is not no he 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 changed it to Stanley uh, officially as like his his writer's name because when he was doing comic books like comic books were how he was paying the bills he was going to be a serious novelist ah fair um, enough that th- that's the excuse he gives um realistically in the world of 1940s 50s and 60s comic book publishing when uh Jack Kirby whose real name was not Jack Kirby had to go Shocking. by Jack Kirby. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I'm guessing it's because Stanley Lieber was considered too Jewish. Yes, probably. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, final thoughts on Blade, Derek Long. Um, you know, it's it's a good movie. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> it's kind of. I think it's actually kind of impressive that that we uh, we spun out a whole podcast out of this one because I mean it's. Yeah. Um, it's almost too good it's to talk too, about, right? And it's, but it's also, but it's also not great. I mean, it's a good movie, but it's not. Yeah. Anyway, um, you finish your. Thoughts. I mean, it's it's worth checking out. I I feel like in in twenty years time, um, this will be a really kind of interesting cultural artifact, and not only in terms of you know uh, Nick, what you mentioned, the kind of you know aesthetic of kind of cyberpunky dark, um, you know kind of metallic sort of color scheme um mm-hmm. but just also you know as you were saying stefan um the really one of the earliest examples of um the kind of current crop of comic book movies um mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like you said this is it's before x-men uh it's before spider-man yeah. so um might might be an interesting one to come back to i just i'd rather watch the punisher first <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at it like the four movies we've been talking about, those are all spaced out over several years. Whereas mm-hmm. probably from now on, we're going to be do- dealing with several movies a mm-hmm. year, or like at most a year gap. Like from now through the rest of this project, it's just they're just going to become much more consistent. Yeah. No, that that is true. They do uh, they do kind of pile up from here, and I, I yep. think that the. Derek, you you mentioned this, and I agree. I am a little surprised that we talked for as long as we did about this. And I guess on one hand, it uh, it does speak to the fact that there is some meat in the film, like that there is there is some stuff to talk about. But uh, the the assumption that I had when we started doing this project is that it would always be easier to talk about the terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that it would. Be I signed up. I signed up for the terrible ones. If and, and if you had worry. told if you had told me we were gonna do this and there weren't bad Marvel movies, I probably would have taken a pass. Don't, I signed don't. up for the four movies we've done so far and for like watching the Fantastic Four movies and Elektra later. Yeah, don't worry. There's plenty <laughs> of terrible Marvel movies to come. Yes, like th- th- this is. Well, as we go through, there will be like little oases of quality, but 
I would say we we even have a terrible Blade movie to look forward to. We, we have a terrible Blade movie. I would say probably like two thirds of the film we're going the films we're going to watch are mediocre or below. Yes, probably. There's not a very high hit rate there, but they make a lot of money. Yes. Yeah. So this was uh this was a bit of a turning point. For our next episode, oh, oh, may I have my final thought? You, you, oh, I thought, I thought that was your final thought. <laughs> oh no, no, I have a final thought, and my final okay. thought is everyone should watch Terriers. <laughs> it's a fantastic <laughs> show. There's, there are only thirteen episodes of it. Last I checked, it was available on uh, on Netflix, possibly also Hulu. It's sadly not been available on DVD. It's fantastic. It stars Donna Logue. It's a sort of nice neo-noir mystery show and as i've said it's the best thing to have premiered on television like the last five years wait wait wait! watch terriers it didn't even get a dvd release no oh my god (laughs) i would buy those dvds in a second i have since the moment it was canceled i have had a like tell me if this is going to be released notification on amazon it is they just won't release it but I think it's. I think the deal for uh, Netflix is essentially an in perpetuity. So hopefully it'll always be available there. I will be very sad if someday I will not be able to watch Terriers. But it's very, very good. Everyone should watch it. Donald Logue is awesome. Wow! I can't yes. believe that's not on DVD. It's not like that. DVD is the dumping ground. No, I mean a lot. Of, I mean a lot of like unsuccessful like 13 episode shows like that or the inside which i was talking about earlier is sort of an impossible to find show because of its vague name uh also not on dvd wow yeah huh i guess we all learned something today (laughs) terriers catch it also i'd like to quickly plug once again blue electric cigarettes (laughs) (laughs) give me my money give me the sweet sweet Stephen dorf endorsement money blue Refreshing, like a cigarette, but electronic. That's probably not their slogan. <laughs> that, that is probably going to be the tag at the beginning of the episode, though. <laughs> Thank you. Re- refreshing, like a cigarette, but electronic. Okay, yeah, our uh, our next film. I, I haven't seen this next film in years, probably since I was a sophomore in high school and i don't really know what to expect it might be a step up it might be a step down but we'll find out together when we explore our differences and watch x-men oh okay how nonchalant you are about that (laughs) oh i was like i was worried i was really worried it was gonna be ang lee's hulk i was like god we haven't gotten to hulk yet have we don't worry, we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> I've seen the backing track to that.